In this episode of The Ziegler Show, we hear from a world-renowned health and fitness expert. She's the picture of health and beauty and success. Then she found herself up on stage to speak to a room full of addicts who she was critically judging for who and how they were. Then she realized they were judging her as well. And then she realized she needed to drop the facade, come clean, and admit she had come from where they were, maybe even worse. Today, Tana Amen is vice president of the renowned Amen Clinics, and still every bit the picture of health and beauty, even more, but now an even greater level of success because her gritty story makes that success so far more glorious. If you've had anything less than a perfect, shiny life, you're going to gain so much from Tana's message. If you're intrigued by the discussion you hear, I encourage you to check out her new book. It's The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, How Persistent Grit and Faith Created a Reluctant Healer. I read it. Now my wife is reading it. It's just a powerful journey of someone who had every reason to fail and and overcame it. But as you're going to hear, she made a different choice. You can also find more from her at relentlesscourage.com. And I'm going to bring her to you in just a moment. Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Miller. I'm so privileged to host three podcasts that have now surpassed 50 million downloads. They're all for people who want to truly grow and change and find fulfillment and joy in their lives. This podcast is The Ziegler Show and where we focus on professional development, succeeding in your career and business. Here I talk with people who have had great professional success doing something they truly care about that serves others. We also take professional and personal development questions to the audience. And Tom Ziegler and I come together to have a conversation around those responses every week. I encourage you to visit Ziegler.com slash podcast and join Tom Ziegler and the family of Ziegler for the inspiration we all need. And right now he's inviting you to join him to become a Ziegler coach. Again, go to Ziegler.com slash podcast or email him at Tom Ziegler at Ziegler.com. In my motive podcast, we get to the root of our desires, our reasons, our motives fuel everything we do, yet we're generally unaware of them. In the latest episode 21, I bring you, I think my most epic story of motive so far, and it comes from Jared on Gaza, who takes us from the Nashville music scene to dealing with sex, slavery in Africa for a decade, and now into space, literally. What drives a guy to go where he has, as is so often the case here, as I press for the core motives of my guests, Jared discusses further insight into himself and followed our time by stating a realization that he said, I like to hurl myself into the unknown, into something that will challenge and stretch me. Every chance I get, it pulls the magic out of me and connects me more deeply to everyone and everything around me. In the True Life podcast, we address our health and wellness. You are the vehicle for all you do. And if your body and mind are compromised, so are all of your efforts. In the latest episode, number 64, we talk with Dr. Dan O'Neill about the plight of our kids who are getting fatter and sicker and less smart as a result. What it means for them, what it means for the present and increasing healthcare crisis, it's dramatic. And of course, then we talk about what can we do about it. You can find all three shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller. Or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. Well, Tana, I've known of you and your husband, Daniel. I've known of you guys for a long time and intended to have you on a show talking about, you know, health and wellness and brain and uh, all that kind of good stuff. And then when I got contacted by your publicist and got this book, I assumed that that's what we were looking at. And it was quite not what I thought it would be. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if you're, if you're getting that a little bit of surprise from people like this is, oh, we yeah. weren't expecting this from you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting that a lot. <laughs> I, I, I imagine. And I also then thought, you know, I saw you, I was kind of just doing my research on you and saw you on some of the, like the 700 club and some of the faith-based organizations. And I thought, yeah, the book's fairly raw and it's very raw. It's very gritty. And I wonder if you had some of the, I'm going to, I'm just going to couch it in the faith-based communities, had some folks there go, Ooh, I'm not sure. That's a little bit much for our crew. Shockingly. No. And really? that's what surprised me. I only had one that was worried about losing sponsors, one radio show that was worried about, and they still had me on, they just, but they decided to just ask me bluntly why I decided to be so real and so raw and not um, make it a softer message. Yeah. And the truth is I actually intentionally, when I decided to write the book, it took me a long time to decide to write this book because when you write about health and wellness and someone criticizes it, Oh, well, not a big deal. 
But when you write about the hardest things in your life um, and people, you know, that they're going to criticize it. You just have to know that when you write anything these days. Um, but that's that's something you brace yourself for. But I made the decision that if I'm going to go through that and I'm going to be criticized, which I am. What's my goal? My goal is to help people understand they're not alone if they've been through a similar situation. And the only way I can do that is to be super honest, to be really raw, really real about what it was like, because otherwise the people who are going through that now or have been through it and haven't released the shame and the pain are going to say, well, so what? It wasn't as bad as what I went through. So when I decided to write this book, I actually made the specific and intentional decision. I would not write it as a faith-based book. I would not make it a Christian book or a spiritual book because I wanted to be super honest. But the crazy thing is, I mean, God works in such mysterious ways. God had a different idea. Um, Two things happened. Number one, that was the publisher that went, Thomas Nelson was the publisher that went crazy over it. They loved it. I told them, I go, you know, I'm not going to change this messaging, right? I I was literally going to ask. It was part of my question because I know Thomas Nelson. I know those guys over there and I've been involved with Michael Hyatt for many years. And I thought, did you get any pushback from them? And you're saying no, it sounds like. So what happened was um, my editor really fought for me. She said, look, she goes, we don't want any gratuitous language or gratuitous um, information in there. But if it's your story of overcoming and it's what you went through, then, yes, we want it in there. What we're going to do is we're going to do a, a focus group. They actually had a focus group of 200 people go through it. And so they're like they decided the language actually had to be in there in order to tell the story because it paints the picture of the environment that I grew up in. But what they did is they're like, let's figure out how to deliver it. What's the delivery going to be? And so that's what we really focused on was how do we deliver it without intentionally alienating the faith-based community, but but still telling the truth? Because let's face it, the Bible is full of awful stories, icky stories, you know, messy stories. Our lives are messy. They're real. Um, And that's what I wanted to deliver. So two things happened. Thomas Nelson was the one who fought for this book and... I was trying to figure out, do I want to put a lot of faith in there? Because how do you mix the ugliness of what I grew up with, with then delivering any kind of faith message in the book? It sort of feels awkward and I couldn't help it. It just came out. That's what came out. And as I prayed about it, I'm like, you know, God, you're just going to have to take this because this was my life. It was messy. It was ugly. It was painful. And it was my faith that sort of pulled me through it. Well, and I appreciate you saying that, that even in the Bible, you know, the stories there, I mean, we have really watered down so many of those. It was in one of Donald Miller's books that he brought that to my attention. He says, yeah, why do we take babies rooms, which we had with some of our kids and put Noah's Ark all over them? He says that the real story was babies drowning and getting their heads bashed against rocks. And yet we've taken it and watered it down. So now I I will say to tell people, because we do have a fairly conservative audience here in the Ziegler show that when you talk about language, I mean, you've got it, you know, it's like bleeped out uh, with with the little symbols, but it's, but it's real to the story. Well, so you're not the first person, Tana, that I've had on the show and that's been on lots of shows and written books. It's forged success from a, you know, a hard upbringing, defying it or overcoming it and harnessing it uh, as their personal brand. But what intrigued me about your story right off the bat, you talk about that in the first story, you talk about going to the, uh, it was the prison, I, I think, and that it sounds like, I'm going to ask you, did you to a point, omit it. So yeah, you're this health and wellness professional and superstar over here. Did you purposely omit that story or even try to hide it? Or did it just feel like it wasn't relevant to what you were doing? So my past story was, that was the first time it really came out. Okay. Um, so that, and it was spontaneous. It, well, it was a God thing. Oh, I love the story. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was a God thing. So I was very judgmental. I was actually at one of the largest chemical addiction recovery programs in the country where most of the people were criminals and court ordered to be there. And so, and I was very judgmental. In fact, I didn't realize how judgmental I still was until I showed up there. Didn't want to be there. I even told my husband I was crying and I'm like, God picked the wrong person this time. Yeah. I don't want to do this. I don't have empathy and compassion for these people because of the pain I had experienced um, in my childhood with my uncle being a heroin addict, my other uncle being murdered in a drug deal gone wrong, I, there was just so much stuff in my past. And I didn't realize just how judgmental I still was. But when I showed up there and, I'm, and I've got all these awful thoughts in my head about what I think of these people, these yeah. people, um, I'm labeling them addicts, junkies, you know, 
uh, criminals, like all these thoughts are in my head and I'm thinking, but I'm, but I'm also intelligent and I'm educated and I'm a nurse and I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, how am I going to reach these people? And so I said a prayer. I always pray before I go on stage. I was saying this prayer, this quick prayer. And I'm like, please just let, you know, one person, if they need to hear something, hear it, but it's going to have to come from you, God, because I just am not up to this today. And it was so interesting. I had an epiphany as I was on stage for the first time ever, I looked out and all of a sudden it struck me. I'm like, I'm seeing them as criminals. I'm seeing them as addicts, as junkies. And they were judging me just as harshly. You know, one lady raised her hand and she's like, what do you know about my life? Look at you. Your life is perfect. And she was seeing what I wanted her to see. She was seeing this facade that I had created, you know, made with hair and makeup and clothes and to keep people out. And so that was to keep people from seeing the pain from the past. And so it kept distance. And when she said that, I realized, you know, we're just sitting here judging each other. And for the first time I looked out and I could see scared children like I was when I was growing up, scared children that grew up in those environments where, you know, people were murdered, where drug deals went wrong, where people were molested, um, where kids nearly drowned. I mean, those are my early memories. Yeah. Um, and that's, I'm going to get choked up. Um, so God answered that prayer. Yeah. Um, I saw scared children just like me. And so I stepped back and it was the first time I told the story. I just, I went off script and I'm like, you know, I, how many of you are judging me? And so they didn't raise their hand at first. I'm like, well, I'm judging you. And so then they got defiant and they were raising their hands. And I said, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story about a scared little girl. And then I went into my childhood and by the end of it, there were tears and we were hugging and I spent two years with those people. And it became one of the most fulfilling, rewarding things I've done. It was incredible. And and so is that your, I'm always curious with somebody who authors a book like yours, especially in a, in a memoir, memoir scenario, are they somewhat your target, your, your muse to write to? Was there anybody specifically that you had in mind? You know, that as a, I'm writing a book right now as well. And you know, they, they school us to write to that person, speak to that person who you want to really resonate with. Who was it? So I think there's two audiences. One are people who grew up with trauma. Yeah. And and I hated the word trauma. I still don't love the word trauma because it makes me feel like a victim. But there's a difference between being victimized and living as yeah. a victim. Yeah. And so, uh, but when you grow up in trauma, it just means that some event happened or events happened that made you feel like your world was unsafe and you couldn't trust the people around you. That's really what it means. So people who grew up in trauma who are trying to overcome it, um, who just can't sort of let the shame go. We tend to blame ourselves okay. and, or both, um, people who are having trouble letting go and forgiving and don't want to reconnect with family that they know they should or need to help. And they're just struggling with that. Like I disconnected from all of my family and there's just, there's so much healing that comes with forgiveness. And that's just, that's a hard thing to do. So those are my two audiences. It's like, when do you get back involved? When do you help? When do you need to keep hard boundaries? And so those are the two audiences. And interestingly enough, I think that that, that the group with the addiction, yeah. they fit both of them. People who are actively in addiction are not going to read my book. They're not ready. Uh, but it's the people recovering. It's the people who have struggled. Maybe they chose that route, that road, because they haven't dealt with their demons yet. They haven't healed from the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in that, how long ago was that? That was 2010. 2010. Okay. Yeah. Well, in 10, 2011. I mean, you had achieved, I, I'm interested in a couple of things. You, you, I mean, you had achieved uh, some successes in your life at that point with this being, you know, in the background. Is there a... And I, I really stumble with using the word regret because it has such negative baggage, but just, a, oh, I, oh, I wish I had done this sooner. Oh, geez. <laughs> you want the list? We don't have time in this podcast. Well, but just, we the, but just in that, it's saying, I wish that I had come forth with this message. I had divulged this stuff. I had made it part of my story before then. So is that, a, that's a, no, I don't like, know about, the, I don't know about that. I feel like this message came out right when it was supposed okay. to. 
Okay. Um, but I think I thought you meant did I had I made decisions before that I that I wish oh, I had. Well, you showcase that in the book oh, so yeah. so <laughs> well. Well, because <laughs> because my curiosity as you're writing this is we have so many people out there. I mean, this is an aspiring audience. That's how I refer to them all the time. They're not here listening to you know NPR's crime scene or whatever just for entertainment. They're here to learn and to grow. So right. by proxy, we can get we can give folks that in that. Do you feel, and you said something to this point, uh, or I, I extrapolated it from that a minute ago, giving people permission to tell their story. Are you, would you say that if you have this story behind you, would you even advocate, don't hide it, let it be part of your story, even from a business standpoint, your brand and who you are, the personality that you are? hundred percent. But I do think people need to be ready. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of reasons, you know, I have, like, I have a little girl, this book is raw. Um, now she's, she's going off to college. So now she's ready, but I needed to make sure that I could talk to her really, you know, know that she understood some of what I went through in my past, some of that pain that I had been through, yeah. um, and why, and what it meant. Um, also I needed to know that I had dealt with my demons before you try to put it all out there and vulnerability, there's so much power in vulnerability, but, but if you're not ready and you haven't dealt with it, there's also a lot of criticism that comes along with putting your story out there. So you do need to, you do need to know that you are strong enough and that you've dealt with this enough. So it came out at the perfect time. And I feel like God's timing is always right. I really do. Um, After going through enough of what I've been through, I've often questioned him. I've often argued with him, fought with him, but he was always right. So, okay. A moment ago, when you're telling a bit of the story about being in front of this audience of addicts, you said, you know, they're judging you here. You are judging them, but they're judging you. And here's this facade. Use that word. It's a curious word because it feels like you could also say it's a fruition. How do you balance that? Was it a, did you look at it at that point as a facade? Cause I mean, I'm looking at you now and you, you look well, (laughs) you, you look like things are going well. I don't, think that that's a facade now, I would say it's a fruition, but how is that, is that changed in the past decade? Yes, it has. Okay. So there was a time where I didn't want people close to me. So I built Mm. walls and I thought I, I suffered with an eating disorder for a long time. Um, I started in my teens because I was trying to, I was struggling for some control over the craziness in my life. And so there was so much brokenness inside and blame. Like I blamed myself and I, and I, there's a lot of shame that goes along with what happened in my life. So I would try to cover that up and overcompensate with accomplishment. So if I'm fit enough, if I am, if I get good enough grades, if I can succeed enough, if I can, if I can overcome these things, people won't know, but I can't let people really know me because if they knew the truth, they wouldn't love me. So there was this crazy fight going on inside of me. Now it's very different. Now it's more, I do this because I choose to, because it's work. Um, it's my job, but I don't live my life like this. Like I don't, like I wouldn't leave my house without looking perfectly made up. And, um, you know, now if I gain weight or, you know, a few pounds or my makeup's not on or whatever happens, it's just part of life. That's my everyday life. It's not something I need. It's not my crutch or my wall. You are listening to The Ziegler Show in this episode with Tana Amen and her profound story of success and then true redemption. Again, you can find her and her new book at RelentlessCourage.com. Here are some great resources for you. Then we're going to jump right back in. In that aspect of the timing being right, as people are hearing this, because again, we're going to have tens of thousands of people hear this that have stories that if they, uh, they, be, they do want to read your book, they've got stories that are, tra- let's just call them trauma. They have trauma back there that is undealt with, has been hidden, that they may faultily think that they have gotten you know, past, but in using it or in divulging it and letting it be a part of your story, even I'm again, again, use the word, even your brand. Did you feel like when you said the timing's right for you, it's because you had achieved a level of health with it and confidence with it? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's because um, several things had happened. I had found my faith. Yeah. Um, and so that gave me um, a sense of strength. It's not all about me. Um, and it was rocky. It was a rocky, that was a rocky road for me, which I write about in the book. And then also I did the work on the trauma. So I overcame that trauma. I, I did that work. So I felt like I was ready. I felt strong enough. And, and I read my comments. I, when people write to me on social media, I read what they say. 
And so I know the different phases of the journey that they're in. And, you know, when people are just still so closed up, that, that shame is just binding them. Yeah. And I've yeah. been there. It's, it's a hard place to be. As a, I'm going to speak just a little bit again to the business side uh, that folks are listening to and that personal brand aspect. So you, this is a decade ago, again, you achieved a lot of success. Then you have a lot since, uh, since that point, have you seen, cause you even mentioned the, the concern of, well, people think less of me. Mm-hmm. Have you seen your personal credibility, even as a, the brand of, of Tana Amen increase as you have allowed this story to be brought forth? Yeah, I was really nervous about it and it ended up um, being the opposite of what I had expected. Okay. So people came closer. Um, I think people felt like I was being more authentic by letting them in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and trust me, you're talking about the grittiness and the rawness of the book. It's the PG-13 version. Yeah. And I think anybody who's grown up in trauma can, can understand that. There's only so much you can write about people's lives, especially when they're alive. But when you're willing to put that into to writing, yeah, there's going to be some criticism, but there was overwhelmingly more embracing than there was anything. Well, yeah, yeah. when you now I have had I will admit I have had a privileged life. I have not gone through the trauma that you have. We have been privileged to walk with even some adopted kids who have come from some hard things. And so when you talk about X, Y, Z that happened in the story to understand the context of that. It's kind of like those biblical stories say, man, if that happened, there's a lot more horrific stuff that happened. So I want to, there's a a few different veins. I'm going to be going down here as we talk, because there's so much to go into one here is as I'm reading it too, as a parent, Mm -hmm. it was hard not to be angered slash hurt by what your mom allowed you to be exposed to. And you don't Pollyanna sugarcoat, that, but you also never disparage her. And if anything, you talk about her in a positive light. And I was literally curious just from the heart standpoint, cause you know, we can talk a lot about forgiveness and things like that. Was that a necessary part or did you authentically really always see her anyway, still in a positive light? So my mom is still one of my best friends. It was, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it was perfect because it obviously wasn't. It's in the book, obviously. Yeah. Um, but my mom, my mom is so interesting. So she's like this, she's like this larger than life figure in my life and in the book. She was a 16 year old runaway. So her life was so hard uh-huh. for her growing up, um, way worse than mine was. Her book would you know, be much harsher than mine. So she was 16 year old runaway. She lived on the streets. She never finished high school. The woman was intense. I mean, intense to say the least. She worked three jobs to put food on the table, would not give up, never ever took government assistance because she didn't believe in it. So that was my example of a female growing up. It's like, I'm going to make it. You're going to go through the hard times with me. You're going to go through the good times with me. And I inherited her grit. So there's a lot of things about my family that I would like, you know, I wish I didn't have to go through that I don't like or that I didn't like, but there are a lot of things that I can appreciate as well. And that's one of them. But my mom, you know, she didn't have the education or the, um, the the socioeconomic status or the upbringing to make really good decisions as a really young mom. And so I think she was doing the best she can, she could, and she made some bad decisions. She definitely made some bad decisions and you can kind of see that good decision, bad decision, good decision, bad decision. And so I think that that's though a lot of times, you know, behavior is complicated. It's hard to, you know, it's easy to call people bad. It's harder to ask why. And so with my mom, it's just, she, I never doubted her love. And I think that's the difference between my mom and my dad is I never doubted her love. She made so many bad decisions, but I never doubted her love for me. Gosh, that's, that's really telling. It it makes me think of just the, like the attachment issues that Mm -hmm. I've learned about as a father that kids deal with that I was so ignorant uh, with that she just, thank God, did some of those well with you because yeah, I, I, again, you know what I'm looking at as a guy, as a father, I'm the protector. And I think the things that she allowed you to be exposed to guys, men, uh, right. that she brought in, oh, just, it grieved me. Uh, yeah. And, and I, and, and, but we can also, we can either focus on, like I said, we can focus on how traumatized we've been yeah. and, you know, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also post-traumatic growth. Yeah. So I decided to take that 
experience from my past and go, okay, these are the things about my mom that I love. Um, by the way, my mom, you want to talk about a success story. That woman who didn't have a high school diploma still doesn't, um, graduate, uh, never graduated from high school, retired an extremely wealthy woman. Yeah. So, and her faith is in like intense now. Now I didn't grow up with that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't grow up with that model of church and God in my life, even though she always said she had faith. I didn't know what that meant. Um, but she's a very, very successful woman now. Yeah. Um, so she's intense, but I decided to take that and say, okay, what about that? Do I want to hold on to? And what do I not want to raise my daughter with? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, so looking at your story and yeah, just to give people who haven't read the book yet highlights, I mean, you, I mean, we say you went through everything from, yeah, the eating disorder and anorexia and, and rape and cancer and, uh, you know, modeling and promiscuity to at least to a, f a fairly conservative point of view. Oh, no. I, yeah. You can uh, just call it what it was. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and, but you, so you did a lot of things. And, and again, from a Christian standpoint, you know, you made it even one of the topics of your uh, chapters there that you model for Playboy. I thought, man, that's, yeah. that's going to be uncomfortable for some folks. But... You know, Zig used to get up and on stage, the very first part of most of his talks was telling about his childhood. I was five years old, you know, this many kids, dad died. I had to go to work. Yada, yada. And he did that so that people could relate to him and they would not discount him. And that's what I saw shining from your story. Yeah, especially your first one where you're standing up looking all trim and perfect and beautiful in front of these addicts. And you said, you're judging me. And then you told the story and boom. And I love that fruition that two years now you're working with them and intimate with them. And I just want people to hear that. Even myself, I, I'm not as a personality that speaks to a lot of people. My story has just not usually been that relevant, especially because it doesn't seem that wowsome. I didn't go through trauma. I didn't have some, you know, horrendous thing to tell about, but I'd come out with things and people go, tell me more about that. You were a professional cyclist. You were, a, tell me about, I did something with, uh, I was with Tom Ziegler recently and just mentioned a story. I said, man, I never knew that about you. And I forget to tell the story to give people context because I know we also have folks that are burned because they feel like we've got the narcissistic, you know, personalities over here. And it's all they do is talk about themselves, but yours, it's got to have allowed who can't relate to you to some degree. You know, you know what's interesting is you just said something you're like, you know, I don't have that much to, to talk to people about like this because I didn't go through trauma and I've lived a privileged life. My daughter would tell you the same thing. She sure. often says to me, I have, I don't get what you're talking about. Cause I, I've got eyes in the back of my head. I've got this spidey sense. Right. So it's like, we'll be walking somewhere. And I'm like, Chloe, pay attention. Look behind you. Like <laughs> I'm one of those people. Right. I mean, even where we live, where it's a nice neighborhood, like I'm, I'm, I'm got cameras everywhere. And, I, think you know, you've I think you've earned that. Yeah. Right. And so she's like, mom, I just can't relate. I can't yeah. relate to you. She's like, I had an amazing life and I'm sorry you went through that, but I can't relate. And I, and I looked at her and I said, you know, honey, never apologize for not being traumatized. I mean, <laughs> you know, don't apologize for that. You've got your own story. You've got your own journey. You have your own gifts that are going to, you're going to bring to the world, but never apologize for not being traumatized. Okay. So I want to dig in here on, we can call it trauma, but hardship challenge, whatever. So uh, again, one of uh, a talk that Zig often put into his messages was a study that was done a long time ago where they took world leaders and influencers did a study on them and found that it was 80% some that the major vast majority came from poverty, handicap, brothers and sisters that were handicapped, something that gave them a, a significant hardship. And it's a great story that they, you know, overcame that. It gave them strength to do what they do. And now these are the people who are, are leading us. And yet he doesn't talk about, and I've pondered it with other people before as well, that for every one of those people who had all these things happen to me, and I'll put it to you. So for all the other women or, you know, people who had a similar lifestyle of yours, of hardship that, for every one of you, I've got to assume there's, I, I don't know, I could make the statistic a, a hundred others, a thousand, 10,000 that it overcame. And we right. always then wonder what it is that allowed you, or I'll, I'll put it to you, the quality that you, if you look back, what would you say? What's the quality that allowed you to overcome, to let it strengthen you instead of being overcome by it? So I, I touched on it earlier. It's grit. Okay. It's grit. It's resilience. It's my mom gave that to me. My dad did not have that. 
So it's interesting. But I will say this. I wanted to say this. So Zig Ziglar um, actually has a special place in my heart. My um, dad, who I was not close to, yeah. because it's a bad relationship. Yeah. And I write about that. I have daddy issues. It's all in my book. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he tried to come into my life at one point, but he had never been there in the past. So I wasn't listening. Um, showed up in my life at a time when, when things were really bad and tried to give me a book of Zig Ziglar's. And I'm like, why would I listen to anything you have to say? <laughs> like, you've never been present for me. So I didn't really take it in. Yeah. Um, but a few years later, when I was ready, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, all of a sudden, I'm like, what, what is this book? And I started reading it and I'm like, oh, this stuff makes sense. Like, <laughs> this really makes sense. But I was ready to hear the message then. Was it see you at the top? What's that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so I had to be ready to hear the message. And right. it really doesn't matter who's delivering the message. I was, I was discounting Zig Ziglar's book because of who delivered it, which is to anybody listening, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so someone, you know, messages come from all sorts of places. Pay attention to the message, not always the messenger. So um, it was really interesting, though, that that's where that book came from. And it was a really powerful book. Yeah. Even I was just I was young and it was a very powerful book. It, it is. You know, you know, on that, though, on that aspect, would you say looking back, we talk so she comes up in so many conversations, Carol Dweck with her book, you know, Mindset and that growth or fix that if you have somebody go through what you did, that for whatever reason that you maybe can't take credit for and don't know why, maybe because of your mom. She, I think part of it's her. She did, she did give you a growth mindset. So even through that trauma, I mean, I wonder if we can boil so much back just to that. So we, my husband and I talk a lot about post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. You always have a percentage of people who go through trauma who are going to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. They're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cripple them. Yeah. But there's a small percentage of people who end up growing That's in great. stress. It's like, it's like, how do you forge steel, right? You put it in fire yeah. and that makes them stronger. And they're just is, and they're doing a lot of studies on this, but I do believe at least part of it is modeled for you. Now, my mom just would not take no for an answer. This is a woman who, yeah, she made a lot of bad decisions, but she just would not let things get her down. So no matter how bad things got, and even with all the bad decisions, she fought through it. And that's the one thing I can always remember. And I think that's part of why I'm still close to her. Do I think she made bad decisions? Yeah, I made the choice not to make those same bad decisions. But I can always remember going, you know, the woman, she's like the Tasmanian devil combined with Lucille Ball. She's a little <laughs> crazy, but she just isn't going to let anyone define her or tell her how it's going to be just because she doesn't have a high school diploma. Yeah. Just because she, you know, whatever it is, she's a female during a time when women can't make it. It didn't matter. And so I just, that's the thing I took away from that. Yeah, it, it is. It, you do showcase that, that she did not let anything limit her and you have done the same, you know, in talking about that book that your dad gave you, see you at the top that you weren't ready for at the time in the book. And I didn't put down the page number, but I somewhere maybe midway, I think it was about midway through you tell about really a catalyst for your life change, really a flip-flop, a 180 when uncle Bob uh, in your life took you to a seminar and between his sharing with you and the seminar, you ultimately realized the ability to control yourself. And you made the statement of you realized how much of con your control you had given away and you made a radical change. It seems like from that standpoint, and honestly, I, I felt like I wanted more because it was like three pages I mean, life change. And then you go forward from there. And like, Seriously, that's, that's the, that's the catalyst back to Donald Miller. This was in his book that I've given uh, scores of away a million miles in a thousand years. And he talks about that inciting incident. What is it that in every great story, you have that inciting incident that changes thing that the, that the mediocre person becomes the hero, that they rise up to the challenge or whatnot in that. And to me, I thought, I mean, there's an inciting incident there. And maybe to you, there wasn't any specific oh, thing yes. that made you ready. Well, but that, that made you ready for, I mean, why did that oh, come yes. at that point? And boom, you took it. And not that everything was perfect from that point on. And it was a perfect trajectory up, but that way, I mean, in the book, it's halfway point and you go forward from there. And again, I, I, I want to look at that and go, what was it that allowed you to be open, that allowed a person to be open, to finally take something and go, I'm ready, I'm aware, I'm going to go a different direction? 
So quite honestly, it's because I hit rock bottom and then my rock bottom had a basement and then a sub basement. Okay. I was just so low. Okay. Um, and I'd made such a mess of my life. And, you know, whatever trauma I experienced as a child in my 20s, it was more a series of bad decisions. <laughs> OK, so it was pretty much self-induced and and it was my fault. It's, I mean, let's just own it. So so many of us, you know, we end up where we end up because of other people. But then at certain points, if we're honest with ourselves, it's because we made bad decisions, just is what it is. And the sooner you admit that, the easier it is to turn it around. Yeah. Um, and I had made this series of bad decisions. And quite honestly, you talked earlier about being promiscuous. And, you know, part of that came from being so broken. And I, I thought that after being, after being um, going through sexual trauma, it's like I had this thought, men play so many games. And the only way for me to survive this game is to be better at it than they are. And so there's this disconnecting, there's this coldness that happens. And it's it's a terrible place to be because it affects all of your relationships. It doesn't just affect your relationships with men, it affects all of your relationships. But you become, I was becoming the thing I hated. And so after this series of bad decisions, you know, all of a sudden the one person who I didn't like very much when I was growing up, because he was a heroin addict, because he got my other uncle murdered, because so many things, all the chaos that was in our house, yeah. but he had turned his life around. He had taken responsibility and he shows up and there's this full circle moment where he's teaching these self-help seminars, my uncle Bob. And he's like, Hey, you know, why don't you come out here and, you know, come to Hawaii for a couple of weeks. And, um, I'm teaching these seminars. It might be good for you. And I'm thinking there's no self-help seminar that's going to help me, but a trip to Hawaii would be good right now. Mm-hmm. So, so I was in it for Hawaii. But I and, you know, the the seminar was great, but it was really the conversation I had with Bob. And I should have known. I mean, he's been through so much on his own to overcome what he overcame. He he was a wealth of wisdom. But we had this one conversation and it was all about responsibility. And he drew a circle on a piece of paper and he split it in half. And he said, you know, how much responsibility are you willing to take for your life? And I'm like, for cancer, for being molested, For, for which part? Which part do you think I'm responsible for? And he looked at me and he said, I didn't ask you how much blame you you were willing to take because it's not your fault. That's not what I said. I asked you how much responsibility you're willing to take for where you're at now. Hmm. Responsibility means the ability to respond. And bam, it was like this light switch moment. I was like, what? Like, it doesn't mean blame. It means response. I can I get to respond. And he, and he looked at that circle that was split in half. And he said, if you take 50 percent, then someone else, you have 50 percent control. But someone else or something else still has 50% control over the outcome. And I was like, no, heck no, I don't want anyone else to have control over the outcome. Like at that point, I wanted 100% and it was a light switch moment and it changed the trajectory of my life. Okay, well, let's go there then. The trajectory because, yeah, if this is a, a movie story here, this isn't that the next day you oh, are no. at success. And you talked about a couple times going into therapy and yeah. you specifically wrote about EMDR, which I I'll tell you, I'm familiar with. I've heard great testimony. I've considered doing it, uh, to understand that, but you went into that and not to make this a, a, the point of that tool in and of itself, but share a little bit about what that did to help you understand more, get clarity more so that you could have more control. So EMDR is amazing because it's a specific type of therapy. It's eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. It's specific to trauma. And when I first started, I mean, I was not a girl. I was a hard charging ICU nurse. Um, don't want to hear walkie talkies. Don't want to hear psycho babble. Intubated, sedated. Let's not talk about our problems. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't want to deal with this. Um, but I finally decided it was time through a series. You know, basically when I met my husband, Um, and I wasn't a patient, we were dating, but he just was so patient and loving and he just kept encouraging this. And his first gift to me was 10 sessions of EMDR. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm going to go try this. Probably not going to do this, but we'll try one or two sessions. And I realized it was different. It really does help you reprocess it. It's super interesting and it helps you to reprocess it as an adult. So the trauma that we experience when we're young, we don't have, we have certain strategies when you're four, right. That you, you use to survive. But those same strategies that we hold on to, because we've never learned a different strategy, are not the strategies that are going to help you when you're 40. Okay. So we learn these new strategies in therapy, and you go back and reprocess this as an adult, and you're able to sort of let it go. And so it was just so powerful. It was so interesting. 
to be able to do that. And they've done studies using EMDR with officers, police officers who have been in officer involved shootings. And it's, it's like miraculous. It's, it's amazing how well it works. Well, another thing you hit on me, there's so much that happened in your childhood. I have been interested. So we got involved in uh, telomeres um, yeah. with, with one of the companies and ended up talking to their chief medical officer because we did it amongst ourselves and staff and were really surprised at some of the people who had these great telomere scores. Right. And some others who had these horrific ones and we're looking at them going, I don't know how much of a healthier life you can live. And, and I, we were, I was disappointed. And so again, we talked to the chief medical officer and he said, you know, it's still an emerging science. It's not a perfected thing at this point. But one of the things that he talked about that they're seeing that has a really uh, statistically has a really big play in the health of your telomeres, which layman's terms for folks, what, what can we say? Your chromosome health right. is a scores adverse childhood, you know, effects, which I would have to think. And again, this, I'm not a professional medical provider here, but I would have to think that your ACE scores are not real well, not good, not good. <laughs> not good. And, and in, in, in the, in the light of there, I think, well, how do you, how do you, can you change that? Can you reverse ACE scores? If that, if, and I don't want to make this about chromosomes, but if it has that much of an impact on somebody's health, obviously, you know, you're living the redemption, you know, of that. But again, going to people who are concerned with, you know, can I really, how much can I really recover, Tana? So, uh, and I, this is all based on the work I did prior to this book. So the Omni Diet Brain Warriors way, I adopted, I love metaphors because I just think they're powerful and they're, they're helpful at times when we're not strong. Um, I adopted the metaphor of being a warrior a long time ago. That's why I practice martial arts. I've got a second degree black belt in Kempo and a black belt in Taekwondo. Not because I'm so tough, because I just kept showing up, right? You, you show up long enough, they're going to put a belt on you eventually. Um, but it was a metaphor for me when I was weak. It was a metaphor when I was down. That it's like, what is the opposite of me right now? How do I behave differently than I am? And, and I, I gathered how to do that through books like See You at the Top or through Tony Robbins or all these different people. It's like, how do I change my physical state so that I now start to adopt this as my lifestyle? And so I adopted this metaphor as being a warrior. And I thought, who's the opposite of me? Warriors. They show up armed, prepared, aware. They're tough. They fight even when they don't want to, when they're hurt, when they're sick. I mean, these are people that get the job done and they protect us. And so I started practicing martial arts. It's a whole thing for me. But what you talked about with the telomeres is really interesting because, yeah, you can't change what happened to you in the past, but you can change how you're still seeing it. You can change the fact that you're still dwelling on it. And, and I love this saying, someone did something to you once, twice, maybe even 10 times, but who is more cruel? the person who hurt you in the past or you for replaying it a thousand times yeah. over and over and over. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's, I'm doing that for a reason because if you continue to replay that every time you replay that your brain does not have a sense of humor. It just does what you tell it to do. It doesn't really understand the difference between your past trauma and what you continue to keep replaying. Right. So you get it under control because that is how you now begin to fight that with your telomeres. I'm drinking my green tea. I take my supplements. I do all these things, but you got to get that past trauma reprocessed. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. We've used that word trauma, which honestly, you don't use that a ton in the book, but we've, I hate the word. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, but it's interesting. I mean, you went from part of your trajectory from this inciting incident was going to nursing school and you became a trauma nurse. Weird, right? Well, but again, the, the interest, I appreciate that as people are hearing this and they're still seeking the direction that they want to go, that you did go into an area that you obviously not only had experience in, but had a heart for. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. The type of trauma, though, that I was dealing with, I, I actually couldn't handle dealing with. My um, professors wanted me to go into psych nursing, oh. and I couldn't stand psych nursing. I literally couldn't stand it. Um, because, And I'm sure it had to do with my own issues, uh, which and now I'm married to a psychiatrist. Go figure. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, I, I <laughs> noticed that. that yeah. Uh, but I remember her saying, you are so good at this and you have so much insight. I'm like, there's no way I'm dealing with people's past stuff like all day long. I'm just not doing it. And I'm sure that's because I hadn't dealt with my own. 
but when I went into nursing, I chose a level A trauma unit where it's blood, guts, gunshot wounds, like that I could deal with. I just couldn't deal with people talking about their problems all day long. There was no way that was going to happen. I wasn't ready for it. And now here I am married to a psychiatrist and I love what I do. Um, so it's interesting that you actually brought that up because I was very clear. They need to be sedated and intubated and not talking. <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's fair. You, you're, you had a quote, um, somewhere I read it in some of your stuff or online somewhere, and I actually wrote it out and then came to find that it was in the latter part of your book. And it's actually from your husband, Daniel, and you cited it again in the back of the book that it's easy to call people bad and harder to ask why mm -hmm. I've never, it's, that's, that's a significant, significant statement. And when you come back to your story of being in front of the addicts and originally, and you were judging them, um, that's a word Tana that I have been talking about more and more and more in the past, probably the past year, you know, with the racial things that we've had. And I've had some really in-depth talks with family members, uh, on faith and that judgment seems to come to the front of all these conflicts that we have, it's the right or wrong, the good or bad, and it's judgment. And especially from a Christian standpoint, I think we are the, we've been some of the worst perpetrators of that word and making it so volatile for people. So back to that statement, it's easy to call people bad and harder to ask why and understand. And it feels like that's a lot of the cry of your heart in this book. So it's so interesting you bring that up. Judge, my husband has a book coming out at the same time, like just coming out. We're doing our PBS show together. His book is called Your Brain is Always Listening, and it's about the dragons from the past that breathe fire on your emotional brain. We just today did um, you know, some, some media around the judgmental dragon, which is one of my top oh. ones, um, the judgmental dragon. But where that comes from is if people really step back and understand why does this judgmental dragon breathe fire on my, you know, my brain? Most of us who have gone through significant chaos in the past where things felt unsafe or they were unsafe or you were hurt or there was injustice, you witnessed injustice, we can tend to latch on to judgment because it keeps us safe. Mm. We need things black and white. So if you understand why you're doing it, it makes it easier then to go, okay, am I, am I focused on the past right now or am I actually focused on the, the problem at present? Because I am... I can get wound up really quick. Mm -hmm. You talk about hurting my child, I'm gonna go crazy, right? Because that's, that's my past haunting my present. So that judgmental dragon is keeping the rules in place that keep my life safe. And yeah. so understanding it from a psychological perspective is really helpful. Um, Cause my husband will joke. He's like, I feel like I live with the judge, the jury and the executioner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So also part of it is forgiveness. And forgiveness for me is a daily practice. People will often say, how did you forgive the people in your yeah. life? Well, number one, it's because I went through and actually did a thorough accounting because your memories are always valid, but they're not always accurate. Mm. If you're talking about memories of a two-year-old or a four-year-old, you're seeing it through a child's eyes. So going back and doing a thorough adult's accounting of it is, and interviewing the people is really important. But then also being able to... Um, process that now and move forward. So this, this, uh, this need to, to judge the past and being able to forgive the people in your past, forgiveness is important because it hurts you. Yeah. It hurts. Most of those people don't care. Um, they don't know. They don't care. They're moved on with their life. So if you can let that go, it's powerful. It's important for you moving on, for you to have a healthy life, especially a spiritual life. But it's a daily practice because there are some people you're going to have a hard time letting go of. You're going to have a hard time letting go of what happened because it wasn't just. It wasn't fair. Life isn't fair. No one ever told you life was going to be fair. Yeah. yeah. But a daily practice of like letting that anger go, letting that judgment go and realizing that it hurts you more than it hurts anyone. And it hurts the people around you. Well, I appreciate you said it in a couple different ways of how we tend to, you talked about it with EMDR that we, you know, have an experience and we coped with it as we could as a child. And sometimes we're trying to use those same coping mechanisms as adults. And now you just again said that 
almost kind of the, the call to do an audit of our memories that we, our perspective changes in essence, I'll paraphrase our perspective change. I've been really overwhelmed with that, that the reality of, yeah, the memory that I had of that thing that happened at this age and I had a perspective on it and that perspective five years later changed. And now the perspective 40 years later has changed. And what's the truth of the memory? My goodness, it's, it puts it up for grabs as to what the reality was. And, and it's well, going and not to just your perspective. There were other people there Absolutely. who have different perspectives. <laughs> so you got to put them all together. Absolutely. You know, you talked about having at the, at the start of the show, in essence, two audiences that you think of with this, but I'm going to ask in a different way. We talk about purpose. Everybody listening to this show is desiring to pursue their purpose, to clarify their purpose. And to do that, we use the word passion a lot, you know, to know what is it that you're passionate about. And I have spoken it probably a couple dozen times now since a couple shows with uh, John O'Leary and then Sam Collier, two guys I had on uh, interviews in about a two week span of time. And they both in talking about this issue of purpose and passion, they both you know, separately talked about what is that thing that breaks your heart? And so when I think about you, as you wrote this book with uh, probably your heart broken for yourself to some degree still, I mean, how can you not to look back at that, the person you were, that kid that you were, but who is it that as you're writing it and hoping gets this, that your heart breaks for? Um, you know, my, I have a special place in my heart for children. Um, so we've adopted, we've adopted our nieces where they're legal guardians now. Um, obviously they're part of my family. So the story is, it's pretty obvious why, (laughs) um, but children who go through, um, traumatic events, who grow up in chaos, that's where I feel like we need to really focus our energy because we need to change the next generation. I know there are adults in my family that are not going to change. They just don't, they're not there. They don't want to, or they want to, and they just can't. Um, but if we can focus on the children, that's the next generation. And I just, I really hope that people who haven't let the past go, who are having trouble with forgiveness, um, who are having trouble with releasing the shame, that's really important. But also knowing that like, if we can focus not just on ourselves, but that next generation, we have a responsibility to the next generation. Well, thank you. Thanks for having the courage to do this. And I feel like it's going to give permission to a lot of people, me included, all of us permission to be forthright with our stories, maybe with ourselves to begin with, but then also question whether we should let it be a part of our story to other people so that we can relate, they can relate and we can come together. But uh, such a courageous book. Thanks for giving us your time and sharing your heart here. Thank you so much, Kevin. Friends, I know there are many stories of hard pasts redeemed to great success, but this one speaks to those who have maybe kept their past hidden or undealt with and are missing out on the power and redemption that can be had by getting it out. And for some of you leading others, you may very well have gotten some light on how you can use your story for your own and others greater benefit. I really encourage you. You can get more from Tana. Check out her book, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, anywhere you buy books, but you can also find it and more at her website, relentlesscourage.com. Coming up in episode 866 of The Ziegler Show, I asked our listeners, what limiting conditioning have you overcome? Tom Ziegler and I talked through many of the comments, which were more varied than I expected, as they often are. Really interesting to hear. And I found myself days later talking to my kids about the concept and exposing the reality that we all let conditioning minimize us and how simply becoming aware is such a powerful freedom and a release to greater progress and possibility in our lives. Till then, folks, thank you, as always, for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.